of Mark chapter 1. This morning we are going to be continuing in our exposition of Mark in verse 21. We'll be looking at verse 21 through verse 28. The tag for today's message is trouble in the temple. Trouble in the temple. This morning as we continue in our series, we are introduced in Mark's gospel to the first recorded miracle of Jesus. Before we begin the study of this text, I want to propose to your hearing a question that is simple yet significant. And that question is this, what makes Jesus different? What is it that makes Jesus so different? This is no doubt the question that many in Galilee were beginning to ask as they watched from a distance the ministry of Jesus. It is even the question that those that were closest to him, his disciples, wrestled with in their own minds as they tried to decipher who exactly is this man. In fact, it's not even until the eighth chapter of Mark where we find that Jesus' disciples, the ones who are closest to him, the ones who are doing life with him, finally understand and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. And as I ask that question, what makes Jesus different, maybe it's a question that you have brought to church with you this morning. Maybe it's a question that has been on your heart as you've wrestled with this call to follow Jesus. Maybe your friends have told you about the joy that is found in Jesus and the freedom that is found in Jesus. And you're here this morning exploring and asking the question, what makes him so different? Throughout the Old Testament and Jewish history, God raised many prophets. God raised many great men from Moses to David to Daniel. Yet Jesus claims to be greater than even the prophets. So again, as I ask this question this morning, what makes Jesus different? I believe that Mark and all of the other gospel writers will loudly answer that question by saying his authority. The authority of Jesus is what makes him so different. Authority is the power or the right to give orders, to make decisions, to enforce obedience. Authority is not a term or a idea that is foreign to us. A king has inherited authority. Because of his bloodline and his lineage, this king is given authority, but his authority is limited to his kingdom. A CEO of a company has delegated authority. The CEO is able to make decisions. He's able to set the vision and the direction of the company. But when things begin to spiral out of control and maybe aren't going as well as they should, the CEO's authority is limited to his board. A professor has acquired authority because of his study, his knowledge, and his accreditations. He is looked to for answers and guidance. 
But even a professor's authority is limited to his students. But as we look at the person and work of Jesus, what we find is that he has authority that covers all space and all time. Jesus has authority that can never be taken away. He has built-in authority that is rooted in who he is, the Son of God and God the Son. Look at verse 21 with me. In verse 21 of Mark's gospel, Mark says, And they went into Capernaum. And straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold your peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed in so much that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Pray with me this morning. As I pray for wisdom and guidance, I want you to pray that God would speak to you this morning, that God would challenge your heart and convict you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, Lord, and look to your word for guidance. We look to your word for answers about who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that as I walk through this text this morning, that you would give me wisdom, that you would give me guidance, that you would allow me to have freedom in the pulpit, that you would help me to be concise and clear, that I would not say anything that you do not want me to say, Lord. Lord, I pray that Jesus would be made big, that God would be glorified and Christ would be honored here this morning. Lord, convict us, challenge us, and point us to heaven. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As we come to our text this morning in verse 21, Jesus has just called his first four disciples in Andrew, Peter, James, and John. And after calling his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, the text tells us that they begin to travel to Capernaum. Capernaum sits on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is actually going to be the city in the area where Jesus will really headquarter the remainder of his earthly ministry. Once in Capernaum, Jesus, as his custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In other words, Jesus didn't skip church. So Jesus enters the synagogue, and the Bible says that Jesus began to teach. Teaching in the, ten- t- teaching in the synagogue or in the temple was not something that was foreign to Jesus. Luke tells us in chapter 4 that Jesus was teaching in the temple at the age of 12, And as you look throughout all the gospel accounts, you will find that Jesus had a reputation 
as a Jewish rabbi or teacher. And during these days, a Jewish custom permitted that visiting visiting teachers would be invited to come into the synagogue on Sabbath and teach the, the, the temple dwellers that were there, much like a guest preacher today. And while Mark does not reveal to us exactly what Jesus preaches in the temple, he gives us a glimpse into the response to Jesus' teaching. And they were astonished. Listen, when Jesus preached and when Jesus taught, nobody fell asleep. What was it about Jesus' teaching that was so mesmerizing? Why were the people so moved by the teaching and preaching of Jesus? As we look at Jesus' preaching in the Gospels, such as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, one could assume that maybe it was the insight of Jesus that so moved people. Jesus, in Matthew 5, was able to look at the Scripture and show those that he was teaching how he was the fulfillment of all the Jewish law. In Luke 24, Jesus is walking down the Emmaus Road next to two men, and the Bible says that Jesus started in the Old Testament with Moses and the prophets and began to show how all of Scripture pointed to him. Jesus had incredible insight into what the Scriptures were trying to say. Maybe they were moved by his inspiration Just as John F. Kennedy inspired a generation with the words, ask not what your country can do for you. Or how Martin Luther King Jr. set a nation on fire by declaring, I have a dream. One would think that maybe it was the inspiring words of Jesus which astonished those that heard him. But as you continue in the text, what you find is that it was not Jesus' instruction. It was not Jesus' insight. It was not merely his inspiration that mesmerized and astonished the people, but rather it was his authority. Jesus spoke as one in charge. In referencing the authority of Jesus, Mark compares the teaching of Jesus to that of the scribes. The scribes were the learned men of Jesus' day. They were the men who would study the law, and then they would transcribe, as their name indicates, they would study the law of the Torah, and they would copy it from paper to paper. And in doing so, they were, they were becoming familiar with the text. They were the, 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 the chief leaders of the law of the Torah, and they would write commentaries on it. The problem with the teaching of the scribes, though, was that the scribes taught not by appealing to their own authority, but rather as the scribes would stand in the synagogue and teach, they would constantly appeal to the authority of others. So as a scribe would open up the book of the Torah, they would quote, here in Isaiah, Rabbi such and such believes this. Or here in Psalms, Rabbi so and so said this. Yet as Jesus stood before them in the temple, Jesus did not appeal to the authority of rabbis, but rather as Matthew Henry comments, Jesus taught as one that knew the mind of God and was commissioned 
to declare it. As the Son of God and God the Son, Jesus spoke the very words of God. As you look back at the Old Testament, when the prophets were giving divine revelation, when they were giving a word from God to God's people, they would preface their statements by saying, Thus saith the Lord. But Jesus, in his preaching and teaching, declared, Verily I say unto you. In other words, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke for God, and yet as Jesus stood in the temple and as Jesus taught, Jesus spoke as God. And as we recognize the authority of Jesus' words, I believe we are reminded of the supremacy of the Word of God. We are reminded of the supremacy of the Word of God. We see the supremacy of the Word in worship. It was not the method of Jesus' teaching that brought those that heard him to amazement, but rather it was the message. I remember as a teenager going to church camps and hearing guest preachers that would come and preach and really taking a liking to them. There were some that were really funny. They would start with a joke and, you know, they would tell jokes throughout the sermon. There were others that were really good at giving illustrations and powerful stories, and that is what I remembered. There was one guy that, as he was preaching, would do cartwheels on the stage to draw the attention to the message. But as I look back on some of my favorite preachers, I recognize now that so often we are more interested in the delivery of the preacher than the message he proclaims. Listen, if we are looking for the one thing that will change human hearts, the one thing that will affect human minds, nothing compares to the Word of God. Not my opinions, not my politics, not my hot takes, but rather standing behind this book and declaring, thus saith the Lord. While I understand this may not hit you the same way that it does me. You see, for the preacher, this is a challenge to stick to the book. This is a challenge to not try to get so fancy and so, so caught up in delivery that you lose sight of the message. But at the same time, I want to bring this to your attention also as students of the Bible and as people that sit under preaching to try to whet your appetite and try to help you to see and tune your ear to what biblical authoritative preaching is. So often we rather be entertained than edified. You know, authoritative preaching comes solely from the word of God. Good preaching does not let the hearer walk away and say, what a communicator, but rather good preaching has the hearer walk away saying, what a savior, what a God. When you come to church, you should come to hear a word from God, not to be entertained. And listen, the way that we hear a word from God is to hear God's word proclaimed. We can be engaging we can be timely. We should be relevant. 
But if we do not declare what God's word is saying, then we are wasting our time. And then secondly, we are reminded of the supremacy of the word in life. First, we're reminded of supremacy of the word in worship as Jesus exposits the text, as Jesus points to himself. But then we recognize that though we may not have Jesus walking on earth with us here today, we have just as much access, if not more, to the very words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means that when you pick up your Bible, that each and every word that is in there is without error, is inspired, it is God-breathed through men for our reading. The authority of Scripture is so rooted in and so closely linked to the authority of Jesus Christ that the two are really indivisible. C.S. Lewis said that to attempt To distinguish them is like asking which blade of a pair of scissors is more important or which leg of a pair of pants is more necessary. Listen, understand that we know Christ through the Bible. And in turn, we understand the Bible through knowledge of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is sufficient to meet our needs. The Bible alone is sufficient to change our hearts. Listen, because God's word is both authoritative and sufficient, we need not rely on crystals. We need not rely on tarot cards. We need not go to the peanut gallery on Facebook to try to get direction and guidance. But rather, if you want some direction and wisdom in your life, then all that you have to do is open up the pages of Scripture. And as we... Then continue in this text, we find that not only are the words of Jesus authoritative, but also are the works. As Jesus begins to teach in the temple and capture the hearts and minds of those listening, trouble begins to stir. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23 says, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Somewhere in the crowd as Jesus is teaching in the temple is a man that Mark says is possessed by an unclean spirit. This was not a troubled man. This was not a sick man. It was not a mentally insane man. But rather, as you go throughout Mark's gospel and see this idea of unclean spirit, what you see is that he was a man that was demonized. He was a man that was possessed by a demonic being. Listen, and before you look crazy at me and say, man, you really believe in demons? I mean, all I can say to you is that if Jesus did then I do too. Listen, Scripture is clear that there are wicked spiritual beings in the world that do the biddings of Satan. And as Jesus stands in the temple declaring the good news of the kingdom of God and pointing to himself as the Messiah, the devil gets agitated and begins to cause a scene. 
the devil screams at Jesus, let us alone. We don't know whether this man was possessed by a plurality of demons or maybe he was speaking on behalf of the entire demonic realm. Let us alone. But what we do know is that this demonic being, this unclean spirit, wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He says, what do we have to do with you? Listen, he shows us an entire separation of interests. What's interesting is that later in Jesus's ministry, as Jesus continues performing miracles and healing and casting out devils, the religious leaders of the time accuse Jesus of being a big demon. They say that he cast out devils by the power of the devil. But here in this first encounter with a demonic being, the devils make it clear Jesus has nothing in common with us. In verse 24, as this demonized man comes to Jesus in terror, he affirms Jesus' humanity. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. While Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth. And while this demon, while this demon, this unclean spirit is calling him Jesus of Nazareth, what he's trying to do is trying to insult Jesus. He's trying to belittle Jesus because if you know anything about biblical geography, Nazareth was the ghetto. This is why Nathaniel said to Philip in John 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth. He affirms Jesus' authority. He says, have you come to destroy us? This unclean spirit recognizes the power which Jesus possesses. He recognizes Jesus as the one that will crush the serpent's head and destroy the works of the devil. And then he affirms the deity of Jesus. He says, I know who you are. He says, you are the Holy One of God. You are the one that has been set apart by God to destroy the works of the devil, the one that has been set apart by God to bring forgiveness for sins, the one that has been set apart by God to allow man to come back into a right relationship with the Father James tells us in chapter 2 of his letter that even the demons believe in God and tremble. You know, and as we look at this interaction of this unclean spirit and Jesus in the temple, we are reminded that the presence of Jesus has a way of arousing satanic opposition. The presence of Jesus has a way of arousing satanic opposition. This very well could have been the first time that this demonized man entered into the synagogue. But at the same time, it may not be. This man could have been a regular attender. This man could have been a longtime member. He could have served weekly, been a leader in the temple. He may have been the highest giving person in the synagogue, but nobody knew that he was possessed with an unclean spirit 
until Jesus showed up. Because the unclean cannot stand in the presence of Jesus. May this be a reminder to us that as we as a church center on the gospel, when you as a Christian begin to put Christ first in your life, when your world begins to revolve around the finished work of Jesus and you seek to honor him and glorify him with all that you do, that opposition will come. Not only will opposition come, but often opposition will come from the most unlikely of places. It must have come as a shock to find an unclean spirit in what was supposed to be a sacred space during a sacred time. The synagogue during the Sabbath. As I look at this idea of satanic opposition, I begin to think that often we have this idea that Satan opposes anything that's good for us. Satan is the reason my car broke down. Satan is the reason my hot water heater went out. Satan is the reason my fingernail broke. But I think even more so, though Satan does come to steal, kill, and destroy, that his greatest opposition comes against anything that points to Christ. This man was in the synagogue. He was plagued with demons. And it wasn't until Jesus showed up that Satan had a problem. Satan doesn't care if your ministry or church grows. Satan doesn't care if your marriage thrives. Satan doesn't care if your family does well. He doesn't even care if you go to church if Jesus is not at the center of it all. But the minute you begin to put Jesus first and the minute you begin to declare to a lost and dying world that Jesus Christ saves, the devil gets frustrated. Listen, but be encouraged because when the devil begins to cause trouble in your life and satanic opposition comes, Jesus has authority over him. Look at verse 25 through verse 27. In verse 25, Mark says, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. This is the same language that was used by Jesus in Mark 4 when Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, and even the ocean had to stand still and listen to the command of Jesus. Verse 26, And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine? What new teaching is this? For with authority commands he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Listen, as this man comes and causes trouble in the temple, as he confronts Jesus, Jesus doesn't argue. Jesus doesn't explain himself. Jesus doesn't try to answer this unclean spirit's question. He simply rebukes the unclean spirit. You know, what's funny about this is that Jesus needed no magic 
formula. Jesus didn't need sage. He didn't need holy water to throw at this unclean man. Jesus didn't say, everybody come over here, get in a circle and hold hands. But rather at the words of Jesus, the devil had to flee. As this demonized man was freed from this satanic stronghold, the people who were astonished at the authoritative words of Jesus as he talked were now amazed at the authoritative works of Jesus. For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You know, it is in the midst of trouble and opposition that the authority of Jesus is magnified. Listen, that it's magnified not only to you, that it's magnified not only in your life as this man is freed, but as it's magnified to those that are watching, those that are seeing your life and seeing the mess you're in, the opposition you're facing. But yet when they see Jesus step in and Jesus free this man, they are in awe and amazement. Jesus has the authority to change lives. This man walked into the temple possessed by an unclean spirit, yet walked out freed by the Savior. If Jesus can set him free, you should never again have the audacity to say about your spouse, to say about your kids, to say about your cousin, to say about your boss, that that person will never change. The gospel gives us hope. The authority and the power of Jesus gives us hope that no matter how bad a person is, if you would just get them to Jesus, if you would just get them to the Lord, they can be freed. As we walk away from this text this morning, there are two major thoughts that I want to leave you with based on the authority of Jesus. The first thought is that the authority of Jesus calls us to submit to him as Lord. The authority of Jesus calls us to submit to him as Lord. Listen, if you're not convinced yet that Jesus is the ultimate authority, we have a clearer picture of what happens than those in Galilee did as we have the completed Bible and we know what Jesus came and what Jesus did. Listen, the authority of Jesus was validated for all of eternity when he went to the cross on behalf of our sins. And when after his death on the cross, he rose from the grave after three days and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. Listen, as we read this account of the works of Jesus, may we not be like the temple goers and just merely sit back in amazement and just say, wow, that is so awesome. But rather, may the authority of Jesus cause us to submit and obey. May the authority of Jesus cause us to repent and believe, to repent of our sin, to repent of our wicked ways, to repent of everything that is against God, and in faith turn towards Jesus, knowing that he is the ultimate authority, knowing that salvation comes through him alone. 
every person lives with some ruling, governing, controlling authority in their life. For some, it is reason. I live the way I live because I think. For others, it is experience. I live the way I live because I feel. Even more, for some, it is tradition. I live the way I live because this is how we've always done it. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the greatest dictator, the greatest governor, the greatest ruler of our lives should be none other than Jesus Christ. Listen, submission to the authority of Jesus brings freedom. Submitting to Jesus' authority brings freedom from sin. It brings freedom from guilt. It brings freedom from shame. And then in turn, that freedom then bores blessing in our life. The blessing of being forgiven. The blessing of being made right with a holy, loving God. The blessing of being granted and promised eternal life. Submitting our lives to Jesus means putting Jesus on the throne of our hearts because of who he is and what he's done. And then the second thing that we find in this text is that the authority of Jesus calls us to rest in his protection and care. The authority of Jesus calls us to rest. No matter what you're facing, when you are in Christ, when you have submitted to the lordship of Jesus, when you are a child of God, you can fully believe and know that the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. I want to give you a theology of Satan in three sentences. Satan is real. Satan is powerful. Satan is defeated. Not that Someday in the future, Satan will be defeated, but that already, right now, Satan, because of the empty tomb and the victorious death of Christ on Calvary, that he is defeated and fighting a losing battle. Listen, Jesus has the authority to defeat the devil, and because of that, no matter what season of life you're in, no matter what troubles you're going through, no matter what opposition you face, you can rest knowing you are on the winning side. I can rest knowing that, that not only am I ultimately made right with God, but I can rest knowing that God is fighting on my behalf. The authority of Jesus causes us to be in awe of him, but it also leads us to trust in and call upon him. Listen, before I close, I want to give you one more reminder. Look at verse 28. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Once you submit to the lordship of Jesus, once you have seen the authority of Jesus in your life, the only natural response is to tell others of his goodness, tell others of his grace, tell others of his salvation. Every head bow and eyes close. Listen, the gospel, the 
good news of Jesus Christ.